Well, friends, I appreciate uh, Pastor Dave sharing last week of the first Sunday of the new year as we were uh, attempting to take some brief holidays to visit family and friends over in Saskatoon. Uh, they had the cold weather as well, but they had an extra foot of snow fall on us while we were there, so it made it uh, made it just that much more uh, interesting a trip. And uh, we're so, so thankful as well to see the sanctuary this morning as... Uh, for Elmer's service on Friday, the Christmas decorations had to stay up. They couldn't be taken down all week. So all of the changeover from Christmas to winter decorations had to happen in a hurry. And it took a lot of work. And we're thankful for those who came out and put in the long hours and always do such a good job uh, making the sanctuary a wonderful place to worship God in. Thank you for that. Well, it's the new year and the new year brings a new focus in our morning Sunday morning scripture messages. Uh, I'm going to begin a series of messages today in the letters of Peter. How many times I've preached through the letters of Paul, the letters of John, the Gospels, the book of Revelation, and to my knowledge, looking back over more than three decades of, of, of preaching on Sunday mornings, I said I've never preached a series from the letters of Peter. Never. I often refer to the passages because they are full of such powerful and good teaching, but never systematically approach the letters of the old fisherman, Peter. But I want to start that this morning with you. This morning, we're not going to get any very far. You know, at this rate, we're only going to look at two verses from 1 Peter. You say, at this rate, Pastor Allen will be preaching Peter... Maybe when we go home to be with the Lord and with Peter. But no, it will it will pick up. I promise you that. The first message in a series is always introductory. Introductions need to be made. I found this slide and I think it sums up one of the themes of Peter very well. First Peter especially speaks to you as a believer as well as the believers of his day as sojourners and exiles. Well, those are fancy words. One we know, one we're less familiar with. The Bible uses both of them or a translation of them to refer to Christians in First Peter. One who is on a sojourn, as the name implies, is on a journey. But it speaks of a person who is in a journey in a foreign land, often a hostile environment, and it's not a quick trip. It's not popping across the border to do a little shopping at Target and they get back across the border before nightfall, some of that cheap gas. That's what people used to do in Medicine Hat. They'd head for Haver, Montana, just to shop for the day, come home. No, it's not like that. It's a trip that takes long time. You're on a long journey, a journey that may seem to never end and one that speaks of the fact that you are in a foreign land, though your heart, your heart remains at home. You're sojourning. You're a sojourner. Exile is very similar. It's a person who by force has been removed from their home is in a hostile foreign environment. You may not feel it, but the scripture says you should at least in part understand your place in this world as a Christian, as a sojourner, or even an exile. Biblical examples, for instance, a sojourner would be the sojourner of the sojourn of the children of Israel in the wilderness for a generation, for 40 years. They looked forward to 
arriving home to the promised land. For 40 years, finally that day came and they were able to go home. They sojourned. The exiles, of course, are much later when God's people who were faithless and had given their hearts to false gods and idols were taken captive by foreign nations, the vicious Assyrians and the arrogant Babylonians, and they were scattered to make them less of a threat. They were scattered in foreign lands as exiles. They were forbidden to return home. Well, we know that lasted for about 70 years, these long times away from home. Peter says that the life you live in this world, you are on a sojourn, you are in exile because your home and your heart is in heaven. You're citizens of another land. In fact, that thought is referenced in the great chapter, Hebrews 11, the Hall of Fame of Faith. Hebrews 11, speaking of people in the life of faith, says all these people have been referring to been referring to the patriarchs all these people were still living by faith when they died they did not receive the things promised they only saw them and welcomed them from a distance and they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth people of faith We're here, but we have a different destination. Of course, that picture, if you know Christian literature, you know that picture is a picture of Pilgrim, the main character from Pilgrim's Progress. In 1678, John Bunyan, who had spent 12 years in prison for his faith, he began to pen an allegory of the Christian life. And it became, after the English Bible, the most important and printed Christian literature in the English language. Not just English. It's been translated in over 200 languages. Three years after he wrote it, it had already been translated into Dutch and into German. Throughout the Reformation world, it gave people hope that though we are on a journey, we have a sure destination. As you see that picture, you know that his name is Pilgrim there because on his back he carries a heavy load, the load of sin. And it's only when Pilgrim goes to the cross of Jesus and accepts Christ as his Savior does his sin fall from his back and it rolls down a hill into the empty tomb. It's a beautiful picture, an allegory of salvation. After that, his journey, it's still a long journey in a foreign land, but He doesn't carry the load of sin and he now bears the name, not pilgrim, but Christian. It's a wonderful story and one that because of the old fashioned language is not read near as often as it used to be. It touches so many hearts because it's our story. We are pilgrims traveling through this world. As I've called this message, reflecting that thought in Peter, just passing through, just passing through. That's how you have to travel now. You remember the days where they would weigh your suitcase? Oh yeah, you're allowed two or three suitcases free of charge, but they can't weigh more than 50 pounds or however many kilograms. Boy, those days are gone. 
Now, everything costs money and everything's so difficult. Don't even get me started on air travel. Your carry-ons, they'll even charge for those. And you have to fit under a seat or in the overhead bin. You have to travel light if you want to fly these days. Well, friends, that's good advice for the believers as well. We, as we are passing through this world, we are not to get too comfortable, make ourselves too much at home. How do we travel light? How do we do that? Because this world is all you've ever known. But Scripture says it's not, as a believer in Christ, your ultimate home. Well, let's let that thought Strangers and exiles, and the other major theme, a living hope, we'll get to in time. Strangers and exiles, let's look at the introductory passages in the time we have remaining. First, the author. Who's the author of Peter? First Peter, it's Peter. The Peter. Peter the fisherman. Peter the apostle of Jesus Christ. That's how he, that's how he names himself. And remember in those old letters, they, you didn't sign your name at the end of a letter, you signed your name at the beginning, which makes far more sense because you don't have to flip to the end to see who's writing it to you. They tell you right off the bat, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. This is Peter, Peter the fisherman, called by Jesus, follow me and I will make you a fisher of men. Peter, the man of great faith, got out of the boat, walked on the water. Peter, the man of divided attention, looked at the waves instead of Jesus, sank into the water. That Peter, oh, I don't shake my head over Peter. He had more faith than I would have at that point. He got out of the boat. Peter, who was willing to die for Jesus. Lord, you will not suffer. And Jesus said, get thee behind me, Peter. Peter, who drew a sword in the garden and cut off the high priest's servant's ear. And Jesus had to put it back on. Put your sword away, Peter. Peter, who was willing to go for Jesus. The Peter, who quailed before a serving girl and denied he even knew Jesus. Denied him three times. Peter, who Jesus restored by the lake in Galilee when he had gone back to a life of fishing. Peter, the apostle, the ascent one, who was especially commissioned to take the good news to God's people, the Jews. He did that on the day of Pentecost at the great feast where the people were gathered from across the Roman world, Jewish people. 3,000 accepted Christ on one day. After the Holy Spirit, Peter goes from being fearful to great man of faith. This Peter, this Peter now late in life. This Peter now near the end of his journey. As Jesus prophesied, you will be bound and go places you don't want to go. Peter had a difficult ending coming. Peter says later in the letter, we'll get to that. Peter says he's writing from Babylon which as well we see in Revelation and some other passages, is one of the ways early Christians referred to Rome. It was a way to refer to Rome. People who were persecuted often resort to code words and things like that. Peter likely wrote this from Rome itself. Likely during the reign of Nero. Probably shortly after the execution, the beheading of the Apostle Paul. Paul, who could not be crucified as Nero crucified so many Christians. Nero, who put Christians on poles in his garden, covered them in pitch and tar, lit them afire, and made them burning living torches for his party. That Nero. But Paul was a Roman citizen. 
crucifixion and those horrible tortures were illegal for a Roman citizen, Paul had the quick death of execution by beheading, not Peter. Peter had crucifixion coming. But Peter is in Rome, and Peter's Greek that he writes this letter in is beautiful Greek. Well, the reason for that, Peter says at the end of the letter, that he is writing with Silas, Silvanus, the co-worker of the Apostle Paul, who replaced Barnabas for the second missionary journey, Paul and Silas in the Philippian jail. That Silas is putting pen to paper as Peter directs him. He is his secretary. The fancy word is his emanuensis. And that's why the Greek of 1 Peter is beautiful. The Greek of 2 Peter is very clumsy, very rough. It's as if Peter, the fisherman who spoke a common rough Greek of the trade, of the marketplace, as if Peter writes that by himself without a secretary. It's one of the differences between these two letters we'll see. Well, that's the author, that Peter. Peter does this, writes this letter as part of his missionary mission that Jesus had given him. Think about what Jesus did when he restored Peter in the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John chapter 21. Remember, Jesus asked Peter three times if he loves him, which calls to mind Peter's three denials of Jesus in Jerusalem before his crucifixion. At the end of that passage, it says, The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. One of the ways Peter is feeding the sheep of God as a shepherd is by writing these letters, sharing the gospel with them, not only in his preaching as he did on the day of Pentecost, as he did when the gospel jumped from Jew to Gentile, God revealed to Peter that there was none unclean now, not unclean food, not unclean people, as he gave him the vision of the the great awning, the great cloth lowered from heaven as Peter slept on a rooftop with all those animals. And God says, rise, kill, and eat. Nothing's unclean. There's no unclean people. And then Peter preaches in the home of a Roman centurion, Cornelius. And the Holy Spirit fell upon those people as they accepted Christ. This Peter now is an apostle. And one of his jobs is to preach and teach. The teaching of God's word is vital and important to the apostolic ministry. The Apostle Paul tells us something important in the book of Galatians. He says, in the church, the two greatest leaders in the early church, we know the leader of the church in Jerusalem was the half-brother of Jesus, James, that Peter, the head of the apostolic band, remained important in leadership over all the churches. But the Apostle Paul had a specific ministry. He was commissioned and sent by Jesus as an apostle to the Gentiles. He always preached to the Jews first. And then after that, he shared the good news with the Gentiles. And Paul says, Peter, on the other hand, was commissioned by Jesus to feed his sheep, the lost sheep of Israel. So Peter's primary focus was to be Jewish people and Paul's Gentile hearers. Paul shares that. In Galatians, Galatians chapter 2, as part of his defense, people saying his ministry was lacking in some ways. 
Paul, speaking of how he shared with the leaders of Jerusalem when he accepted Christ, says in Galatians 2, verse 7, On the contrary, they saw the leadership of the church. They saw that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, just as Peter had been to the Jews. For God, who is at work in the ministry of Peter as an apostle to the Jews, was also at work in my ministry as an apostle to the Gentiles. It's fascinating. God had these two men, Peter and Paul, they were the spearhead of his mission, that salvation mission to a lost world, Jews and Gentiles. Peter headed the work to the Jews, Paul, to the Gentiles. Of course, they ministered to churches that were all mixed people, Jews and Gentiles, but their stresses are different. Their focus is a little bit different. This is Peter, our author. There will be times where he speaks, he quotes a lot from the Old Testament, but there are times where we recognize he's talking to Gentile believers as well. Now the recipients. Who are the hearers? Who does he address this letter to? First, he says the recipients are strangers in the world. Remember our theme, sojourners and exiles? Let's see how Peter addresses the letter. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Peter, an apostle, to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered now, the word Peter used is here, scattered, this Greek word that Silas translates what Peter is saying. Peter would know this word well because this word, the Greek word diaspora, was a technical term among the Jews of Jesus' time for the Jews who were scattered in the Gentile nations. On the day of Pentecost, representatives of the diaspora, all those different nations, had come to Jerusalem for the festival. Paul was a diaspora Jew. We call them Hellenistic Jews. Their primary language would have been Greek. They came from Greek-speaking Roman cities. Paul of Tarsus, he was a diaspora Jew, a Hellenistic Jew. Peter, Galilean born and bred, fisherman. Peter was Jewish Jew from the promised land. There was cultural differences. Remember in the early church, that's why the first deacons were appointed because the Hellenistic diaspora Greek-speaking Jews, they didn't feel that their needs were being met over the Jews that were from Judea and Galilee, that they were somehow culturally getting preferential treatment. So that was an issue of those times. Peter is writing to diaspora Jews. He is, we see him beginning in Jerusalem, and then he, step by step, his ministry moves further into the Roman, the Gentile world. Now with this letter, Peter is reaching a group that is all Roman provinces, Jews in the diaspora. I have a map here that shows you where these five, these five provinces that Peter addresses the letter to, they're all in what we would say modern-day Turkey, the, the Anatolian Peninsula between the Black Sea and the Mediterranean Sea. And that's on the north side of that. 
And we know some of those, like Galatia, the Apostle Paul, the letter to the Galatians, Paul, on his missionary journey, planted churches there. But we know there's some provinces, like Bithynia, where Paul says the Holy Spirit said do not enter, would not allow him to go into Bithynia. Instead, they jumped over into Europe and went to Philippi and other churches there when he heard the Macedonian call. But Peter now is writing to churches, some Pauline, some started by other people, probably Jews from that day of Pentecost, great conversion event, who went home and started churches. Peter is writing to those believers in the northern part of Turkey. Those are his hearers. And though many of them probably heard about Jesus at the festival in Jerusalem and then went home, now Peter is telling them, you're really not at home. You don't belong anymore. From when you left to go to the day of Pentecost, that festival, and when you return home, something fundamental has changed. You're not at home anymore. Some of you may have felt that. If you came to Christ as a child, you may not remember that. But as an adult, if you came to faith in Christ, you remember well, things change. Places that you used to feel so comfortable in, so at home in, you don't feel so comfortable anymore. Certain company and the things that they prioritize and value, you don't fit in so well anymore. Nobody likes that. We all want to be accepted. We all want to be feel at home. But for believers in this sinful world, this lost and hurting world, we don't fit in like we used to before we knew Jesus. So Peter says they are strangers in this world. He says they're God's elect, and we'll look at that next. But first, what does it mean to be a stranger in this land, to be a sojourner? Scripture speaks of it not just from the Apostle Peter, but from many places. Jesus, for instance, we often use a phrase, and it's a good phrase because it was coined by Jesus himself. It comes from his prayer for us in the garden in John chapter 17. The phrase is, in the world, but not of the world. You've heard that. It describes us. We're here in this sinful world, but we don't belong to it. We're not subjects of the kingdom of Satan, the prince and power of the air. We're subjects of the kingdom of God now. We're in this world, but we're not of this world. Remember Jesus, as he prayed, he says of us, all believers, he says, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. Do you get that? We are in this world as Jesus was, but he was the Prince of Glory. And now as adopted children in God's family, we no longer are of the world either. Our home is heaven. Our citizenship is in the kingdom of God. But Jesus, he doesn't take you home. He says you are in this world just as God sent him into the world on that salvation mission. You are his ambassadors now. Your role has changed. 
You're in the world, not of the world, but you're here for the world. You have a job to do. Your life is not your own. You are an ambassador of the kingdom of God. Paul says in 2 Corinthians that Jesus' ministry of reconciliation has now become your ministry. As an ambassador of Christ, your message is be reconciled to God through Jesus. Through our words, our actions. We live a life like everyone else. We have jobs and families and homes and possessions. We appear to belong to the world, but fundamentally, there's something different at the heart of us. We are here for this hurting world. In Philippians chapter 3, there's a powerful passage that speaks of the fact that though we appear to be just like everyone else, that we have a different direction and destiny. This is very similar to Jesus' teaching in the Gospels of the broad road that leads to destruction. And that those who follow Jesus are on a narrow road and they found Jesus, the, the narrow way. The Apostle Paul writing of the difference between those who know Christ and those who do not. He says, For as I have often told you before, and now say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. And their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's powerful. That's frightening. That friends, if your friends, if your family members don't know Jesus, they have a very different direction in life and they have a different destiny than you do. It's a horrible thing. This is what motivates us. This is what brought Jesus to earth for God so loved the world that He sent His one and only Son. He continues to love this world and now He sends you and I with the message of Christ. Be reconciled. That your destiny is no longer destruction. That your God is no longer your stomach. What a powerful picture. Your appetites. You live for yourself. And your desires, your sinful desires, the flesh is all that you live for. And your mind is only on earthly things with fallible human wisdom. God, for His children, has something much more for us. We have a different destiny, different direction. And Jesus, all the way back in the Sermon on the Mount, said, the world, the world is a lost and hurting world as a sinful system. That's how Scripture often refers to the cosmos, the world, this sinful system that we all experience. It says, they will hate you, Jesus says, but God's desire is to bless you. The world may hate you, but God wants you to be blessed. As we see in Jesus, as soon as he finished passage on the Beatitudes, 
His last beatitude, in fact, it's not on the screen. He says, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's describing his followers. Citizenship, kingdom of heaven. And Jesus explains that last beatitude in verse 11 of Matthew 5. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil things against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In the same way, just as they persecuted the prophets, they persecute Jesus' followers as well. Those are all powerful, sobering messages that, friends, we can't feel at home here. We live good lives. We love the beauty that God created in this world. There's so much. His fingerprints are all around us. And we rejoice in it. We praise Him for it. But we know as far as humanity, we are on a different track. We don't belong anymore. We have a different role to play. Right after that passage I just read for you, Jesus says, because of this, you're to be salt and you're to be light. Strangers in the world, scattered. That's us today. Peter also says that the recipients are God's elect. Now that's very positive. When you elect somebody, what do you do? You vote for them. Well, what is a vote? You've chosen them among others. You've chosen them. To be God's elect as a child of God, it's not all your choice. In fact, we don't even have the power of faith. That's a gift from God, Paul says in Ephesians. God himself, before the foundations of the world, chose you because he loved you. Such an encouraging and hopeful message that we are God's elect. Peter says in 1 Peter verse chapter 1, verse 2, we're moving right along. Peter, continuing to describe his recipients of this letter, says, those who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkled, sprinkling by His blood. Now this is an incredible verse because it is one of the primary verses in which we see the Trinity at work in our salvation. Look at that. I've even highlighted I've even highlighted the passages. God the Father chooses you. You are sanctified, which means set apart and made holy by the work of the Holy Spirit for obedience through Jesus and the sprinkling of His blood. That's the shed blood of Christ that washes away our sin. What a powerful picture of us. It's a description of your salvation in amazing Trinitarian language the recipients are god's elect this description of salvation just to look at it a little bit closer bible says many places that god the father has chosen us we are elect he has chosen us before the foundations of the world one of those powerful passages of course is ephesians chapter one the apostle paul says in verse three praise be to god the father the god praise be to the god and father of our lord jesus christ speaking of Him, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ, for He chose us 
in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. Then it goes on that says, in love He predestined us. It was a choice made by love. The God knew you, not only before your parents knew each other. He knew you and chose you before the creation of the world. God's good and perfect will, His love for you, is from ages past. The Father chooses, the Spirit has a powerful ministry to take you, a former citizen of this sinful world, and to set you apart. And day by day, to cleanse you and make you holy, sanctify you and grow you in maturity to be like Jesus. The Apostle Paul, in the book of Romans, Romans 8 speaks of the sanctifying work of the Spirit, beginning in verse 13. Paul contrasts living according to the flesh, the old way we lived, citizens of this old world, with how we live according to the Spirit. He says, For if you live according to the sinful nature, that's the flesh, literally that word, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by Him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. (laughs) The sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus, remember, says, it's for your benefit that I go to my Father's right hand and intercede for you so that I can send the Comforter, another Comforter, the Paraclete, the Holy Spirit. He ministers in the lives of the saved this very day. And of course, we're saved because of the shed blood of Jesus, a lamb without spot or blemish. Romans chapter 5, verse 8, but God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by His blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through Him? The shed blood of Jesus. In that one verse, Peter sums up who we are. Saved because the Father chose us. Jesus shed His blood for us. And the Spirit sanctifies us cleanses us and makes us holy and useful for the kingdom of God. Boy, there's a lot in Peter's opening verses. Reflecting on it, I have to ask, does it really describe us? There are days where this does not describe me. I seem so at home here. Think about it. Scripture talks about the Lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. That's what this world's about. What gets you up in the morning? Who do you live your life for? Is it yourself? Is it your hobbies, your pleasures? Maybe you're a workaholic. Power, profession, pleasure. Those are the things this world lives for. The Bible says as God's children, this isn't us. I ask the question, How then shall we live? If we don't belong to this world, if we're on another path, if we're just passing through, this world is not our home, 
how are we to look different? We look the same in so many ways, but what makes us different? A lot of it's not visible. A lot of it is at the heart level. James, boy, you read the book of James. He is blunt. He is like a hammer sometimes. He is not a scalpel. He's a hammer. In the book of James, James puts it very bluntly. He says, it's a heart issue. James 4, 4, he writes to his church there in Jerusalem and he sees them making themselves too much at home and he warns them. He says, it's like spiritual adultery. He says, you adulterous people, don't you know that the friendship with the world is a hatred and enmity toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. And he continues in the next verse and says, the spirit of God that dwells in you envies intensely. God is envious. You are his. You are the bride of Christ. He refuses to share you with anyone. It's not an open relationship. You are the bride of Christ. You belong to him. Don't give your heart and life to this old world. Don't fall in love with it all over again. Don't set up an idol in God's place. Don't be friends with the world. We love them. We're missionaries. We're here for the world. And we love the sinners, but we can't embrace the sin. No longer. Well, John... (laughs) John approaches the same issue very differently. Where James scolds and warns against spiritual adultery, John, the apostle of love, says it's a love issue. Who do you love? Ask yourself. Who is first in your heart and in your affections? In 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 15, John says this, Do not love the world. Or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has, that's literally old King James, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. That's a modern translation of it. The lust of his eyes and the boasting of what he has and does It comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. What's first in our hearts? Is it self or is it for God? Do you go to work because you love your family and you want to glorify God? As Scripture said, we shared it at Elmer's funeral on Friday, Work as for the Lord. Whatever you put your hand to, do it with all your heart and might and work for God. Not your employer, not for your paycheck. Do it for the Lord. Everything you say and do, do for the glory of God. And if you can't do it for God's glory, it's beyond the pale. (laughs) I had a pastor once told me, he was talking to teenage boys and he was a veteran. He was an old guy. He may have been my age. You know, but he said, he said, you guys, he says, if you can't say wherever you find yourself and whatever you're doing at that moment, I want to do this for God's glory. If it's something that can't be done for God's glory, 
Don't do it. (laughs) Get out of there. Flee from it. Don't do it. So our family, our professions, our relationships, love and show God's love through them. Do them for the glory of God. It's a heart issue. And wherever you put your heart, that becomes your treasure. What did Jesus say? He said, do not store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. There are many people who claim to be followers of Jesus who have wonderful bank accounts, great retirement plans, Amazing possessions. But they're poor in their relationship with God. They're living for themselves rather than for His glory and they're not laying up treasure in heaven. Jesus asks us to examine our hearts and lives. What do we treasure? Who's first in our hearts? And friends, if we take that seriously, we will begin to resemble, just as we began, those people who live by faith in the Hall of Fame of Faith in Hebrews chapter 11. That passage that begins in verse 13 ends with this thought in verse 16, and I end with it as well. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. For he has prepared a city for them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, oh Lord, passages like this, sometimes we're afraid to step on toes, but Lord, if our feet are where they're not, they're walking in paths they shouldn't, boy, we need our toes stepped on. Lord, I know you've spoken to me in these issues. Lord, we love to enjoy the things of this world. But we can't make idols of them. We can't live for them. We can't make them our goal. For this world is not our home. We're just passing through. And Lord, may this journey be one of faith, not sight. May our goal be the glory of God. May our message of our life, our attitudes and our actions be the grace of God shown in Jesus' love for us, shown in its full extent on the cross. As Jesus prayed for each one here today, He prayed not that You take us out of this world, but You protect us from the evil one. For just as You, our Heavenly Father, sent Jesus into this world, You send us fresh and new today. And we're here for the same reason, to be fishers of men. And so, Lord, in the weeks to come, may the words of the old fishermen ring fresh and new in our hearts as we receive them for what they are, the words of God. As as Jesus commissioned Peter to feed your sheep, may we be fed on the truth of your word in these weeks. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you and keep you.